Dear listeners, are you tired of the endless cycle of fad diets and extreme measures? It's time to wake up to a better weight loss solution with Robody. As someone who's been through the ups and downs of weight loss, I know firsthand the challenge of trying to find what will stick. That's why if I qualified for Robody today, I jump at the chance for a scientifically backed program that supports long-term success. With Robody, you'll gain access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market, paired with personalized lifestyle changes. Over 200,000 people have already chosen Roe to help them lose weight. Say goodbye to the roller coaster of weight loss dreams and hello to sustainable, real results with Robody. Go to roco snoozecast. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash snoozecast. snoozecast.com and follow us on Instagram at snoozecast to find behind the scenes content. If you would like to get an email once a week with upcoming sleep stories and other news, subscribe to the snoozeletter at snoozecast.com. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters and by The Bright Side. Tonight, we'll read the conclusion to A Case of Identity, a short story from the adventures of Sherlock Holmes, written by Arthur Conan Doyle. The first part of this story originally aired on April 8th, 2020, and we rebroadcast it yesterday for easy access. Miss Sutherland was engaged to Mr. Hosmer Angel, who disappeared on the day of their wedding, leaving her only a mysterious plea that she remain faithful to him no matter what happened. She vows to await his return and eventually turns to a certain detective for assistance. Let's get cozy. Close your eyes. Relax your body into the softness of your bed. Now, take a few deep breaths. It 
it seems to me that you have been very shamefully treated by your fiancé, Mr. Hosmer, said Holmes to Miss Sutherland. Oh, no, sir. He was too good and kind to leave me so. Why, all the morning he was saying to me that whatever happened, I was to be true, and that even if something quite unforeseen occurred to separate us, he would be back. And yet, what could have happened to him? And why could he not write? Oh, it drives me half mad to think of it. She pulled a little handkerchief out of her purse and began to sob heavily into it. I shall glance into the case for you, said Holmes, rising. And I have no doubt that we will reach some final result. Let the weight of the matter rest upon me now, and do not let your mind dwell upon it further. Above all, try to let Mr. Hosmer Angel vanish from your memory as he has done from your life. Then you don't think I'll see him again? I fear not. Then what has happened to him? You will leave that question in my hands. I should like an accurate description of him and any letters of his which you can spare. I advertised for him in last Saturday's Chronicle. Here's the slip, and here are four letters from him. Thank you. And your address? Number 31, Leon Place, Camberwall. Mr. Angel's address you never had, I understand. Where is your father's place of business? The Great Claret Importers of Fenchurch Street. Thank you. You have made your statement very clearly. You will leave the papers here and remember the advice which I have given you. Let the whole incident be a sealed book and do not allow it to affect your life. You are very kind, Mr. Holmes, but I cannot do that. I shall be true to Hosmer. He shall find me ready when he comes back. For all the preposterous hat and the vacuous face, there was something noble in the simple faith of our visitor which compelled our respect. She laid her little bundle of papers upon the table and went her way with a promise to come again when she might be summoned. Sherlock Holmes sat silent for a few minutes with his fingertips still pressed together. His legs stretched out in front of him and his gaze directed upward to the ceiling. Then he took down from the rack the old and oily clay pipe, which was to him as a counselor 
and, having lit it, he leaned back in his chair with the thick blue cloud wreaths spinning up from him and a look of infinite languor in his face. Quite an interesting study, that maiden, he observed. I found her more interesting than her problem, which, by the way, is a rather trite one. Old as is the idea, however, there were one or two details which were new to me. But the maiden herself was most instructive. You appeared to read a good deal upon her which was quite invisible to me, I remarked. Not invisible, but unnoticed, Watson. You did not know where to look, and so you missed all that was important. I can never bring you to realize the importance of sleeves, the suggestiveness of thumbnails, or the great issues that may hang from a bootlace. Now, what did you gather from that woman's appearance? Describe it. Well, she had a slate-colored, broad-brimmed straw hat with a feather of a brickish red. Her jacket was black, with black beads sewn upon it, and a fringe of little black jet ornaments. Her boots I didn't observe. She had small, round, hanging gold earrings, and a general air of being fairly well-to-do in a vulgar, comfortable, easy-going way. Sherlock Holmes clapped his hands softly together and chuckled. Upon my word, Watson, you are coming along wonderfully. You have really done very well indeed. It is true that you have missed everything of importance, but you have hit upon the method, and you have a quick eye for color. Never trust to general impressions, but concentrate yourself upon details. My first glance is always at a woman's sleeve. In a man, it is perhaps better first to take the knee of the trouser. As you observe, this woman had plush upon her sleeves, which is a most useful material for showing traces. The double line a little bit above the wrist where the typewritist presses against the table was beautifully defined. The sewing machine of the hand type leaves a similar mark, but only on the left arm 
and on the side of it farthest from the thumb. Instead of being right across the broadest part, as this was, I then glanced at her face, and, observing the dint of a pince-nez at either side of her nose, I ventured a remark upon short sight and typewriting, which seemed to surprise her. It surprised me, but surely it was obvious. I was then much surprised and interested on glancing down to observe that, though the boots which she was wearing were not unlike each other, they were really odd ones. The one having a slightly decorated toe cap and the other a plain one. Now, when you see that a young lady, otherwise neatly dressed, has come away from home with odd boots half buttoned, it is no great deduction to say that she came away in a hurry. And what else? I asked, keenly interested, as I always was, by my friend's incisive reasoning. I noted, in passing, that she had written a note before leaving home, but after being fully dressed. You observed that her right glove was torn at the forefinger, but you did not apparently see that both glove and forefinger were stained with violet ink. She had written in a hurry and dipped her pen too deep. All this is amusing, though rather elementary, but I must go back to business, Watson. Would you mind reading me the advertised description of Mr. Hosmer Angel? I held the little printed slip to the light. Missing, it said, on the morning of the 14th, a gentleman named Hosmer Angel, about five feet, seven inches in height, strongly built, sallow complexion, black hair, a little bald in the center, bushy black side whiskers and mustache, tinted glasses, slight infirmity of speech, known to have been employed in an office in Leadenhall Street, anybody bringing. That will do, said Holmes. As to the letters, he continued, glancing over them, they are very commonplace absolutely no clue in them to Mr. Angel, save that he quotes Balzac once. There is one remarkable point, however, which will no doubt strike you. 
they are typewritten, I remarked. Not only that, but the signature is typewritten. Look at the neat little Hosmer angel at the bottom. The point about the signature is very suggestive. In fact, we may call it conclusive. Of what? My dear fellow, is it possible you do not see how strongly it bears upon the case? I cannot say that I do, unless it were that he wished to be able to deny his signature if an action for breach of promise were instituted. No, that was not the point. However, I shall write two letters which should settle the matter. One is to affirm in the city. The other is to the young lady's stepfather, Mr. Windebank, asking him whether he could meet us here at six o'clock tomorrow evening. And now, doctor, we can do nothing until the answers to those letters come. So, we may put our little problem upon the shelf for the interim. I had had so many reasons to believe in my friend's subtle powers of reasoning and extraordinary energy in action that I felt that he must have some solid grounds for the assured and easy demeanor with which he treated the singular mystery which he had been called upon to fathom. I felt that it would be a strange tangle indeed which he could not unravel. I left him then, still puffing at his black clay pipe, with the conviction that when I came back on the next evening, I would find that he held in his hands all the clues which would lead up to the identity of the disappearing bridegroom of Miss Mary Sutherland. A professional case of great gravity was engaging my own attention at the time, and the whole of next day I was busy at the bedside of the sufferer. It was not until close upon six o'clock that I found myself free and was able to spring into a hansom and drive to Baker Street, half afraid that I might be too late to assist at the denouement of the little mystery. I found Sherlock Holmes alone, half asleep, with his long, thin form curled up in the recesses of his armchair, a formidable array of bottles and test tubes, with the pungent 
cleanly smell of hydrochloric acid told me that he had spent his day in the chemical work, which was so dear to him. Well, have you solved it? I asked as I entered. Yes, it was the bisulfate of Berita. No, the mystery, I cried. Oh, that. I thought of the salt that I have been working upon. There was never any mystery in the matter, though. As I said yesterday, some of the details are of interest. The only drawback is that there is no law, I fear, that can touch the scoundrel. Who was he then? And what was his object in deserting Miss Sutherland? The question was hardly out of my mouth, and Holmes had not yet opened his lips to reply when we heard a heavy footfall in the passage and a tap at the door. This is the girl's stepfather, Mr. James Windbank, said Holmes. He has written to me to say, that he would be here at six. Come in. The man who entered was a sturdy, middle-sized fellow, some thirty years of age, clean-shaven and sallow-skinned, with a bland, insinuating manner and a pair of wonderfully sharp and penetrating gray eyes. He shot a questioning glance at each of us, placed his shiny top hat upon the sideboard, and with a slight bow, sidled down into the nearest chair. Good evening, Mr. James Windbank, said Holmes. I think that this typewritten letter is from you, in which you made an appointment with me for six o'clock. Yes, sir, I am afraid that I am a little late, but I am not quite my own master, you know. I am sorry that Miss Sutherland has troubled you about this little matter for I think it is far better not to wash linen of this sort in public. On the contrary, said Holmes, quietly, I have every reason to believe that I will succeed in discovering Mr. Hosmer Angel. Mr. Windbank gave a violent start and dropped his gloves. I'm delighted to hear it, he said. It is a curious thing, remarked Holmes, that a typewriter has really quite as much individuality as a man's handwriting, unless they are quite new. No two of them write exactly alike. Some letters get more worn than others, and somewhere 
only on one side. Now, you remark in this note of yours, Mr. Windebank, that in every case there is some little slurring over the E and a slight defect in the tail of the R. There are 14 other characteristics, but those are the more obvious. We do all our correspondence with this machine at the office, and no doubt it is a little worn, our visitor answered, glancing keenly at Holmes with his bright little eyes. And now I will show you what is really a very interesting study, Mr. Windebank, Holmes continued. I think of writing another little monograph some of these days on the typewriter and its relation to crime. It is a subject to which I have devoted some little attention. I have here four letters which purport to come from the missing man. They are all typewritten. In each case, not only are the E's slurred and the R's tailless, but you will observe, if you care to use my magnifying lens, that the 14 other characteristics to which I have alluded are there as well. Mr. Windebank sprang out of his chair and picked up his hat. I cannot waste time over this sort of fantastic talk, Mr. Holmes, he said. If you can catch the man, catch him, and let me know when you have done it. Certainly, said Holmes, stepping over and turning the key in the door. I let you know then that I have caught him. What? Where? shouted Mr. Windebank, turning white to his lips and glancing about him like a rat in a trap. Oh, it won't do. Really, it won't, said Holmes, suavely. There is no possible getting out of it, Mr. Windebank. It is quite too transparent. And it was a very bad compliment when you said that it was impossible for me to solve so simple a question. That's right. Sit down and let us talk it over. Our visitor collapsed into a chair with a ghastly face and a glitter of moisture on his brow. It's not actionable, he stammered. I am very much afraid that it is not. Now, let me just run over the course of events, and you will contradict me if I go wrong. The man sat huddled up in his chair, with his head sunk upon his breast, 
like one who is utterly crushed. Holmes stuck his feet up on the corner of the mantelpiece and, leaning back with his hands in his pockets, began talking, rather to himself, as it seemed, than to us. The man married a woman very much older than himself for her money, said he, and he enjoyed the use of the money of the daughter as long as she lived with him. It was a considerable sum for people in their position, and the loss of it would have made a serious difference. It was worth an effort to preserve it. The daughter was of a good, amiable disposition, but affectionate and warm-hearted in her ways, so that it was evident that with her fair personal advantages and her little income, she would not be allowed to remain single long. Now, her marriage would mean, of course, the loss of a hundred a year. So what does her stepfather do to prevent it? He takes the obvious course of keeping her at home and forbidding her to seek the company of people her own age. But soon, he found that that would not be the answer forever. She became restive, insisted upon her rights, and finally announced her positive intention of going to a certain ball. What does her clever stepfather do then? He conceives an idea more creditable to his head than to his heart, with the connivance and assistance of his wife. He disguised himself, covered those keen eyes with tinted glasses, masked the face with a mustache and a pair of bushy whiskers, sunk that clear voice into an insinuating whisper, and doubly secure on account of the girl's short sight. He appears as Mr. Hosmer Angel and keeps away other suitors. It was only a joke at first, groaned our visitor. We never thought she would have been so carried away. Very likely not. However that may be, the young lady was very decidedly carried away, and having quite made up her mind that her stepfather was in France, the suspicion of treachery never for an instant entered her mind. She was flattered by the gentleman's attentions, and the effect was increased by the loudly expressed admiration of her mother. Then... Mr. Angel began to call, for it was obvious that the matter should be pushed 
as far as it would go if a real effect were to be produced. There were meetings and an engagement which would finally secure the girl's affections from turning towards anyone else. But the deception could not be kept up forever. These pretended journeys to France were rather cumbrous. The thing to do was clearly to bring the business to an end in such a dramatic manner that it would leave a permanent impression upon the young lady's mind and prevent her from looking upon any other suitor for some time to come. Hence, those vows of fidelity exacted upon a testament. And hence also, the allusions to a possibility of something happening on the very morning of the wedding. James Windebank wished Miss Sutherland to be so bound to Hosmer Angel and so uncertain as to his fate that for ten years to come, at any rate, she would not listen to another man. As far as the church door he brought her, and then, as he could go no further, he conveniently vanished away by the old trick of stepping in at one door of a four-wheeler and out at the other. I think that was the chain of events, Mr. Windebank. Our visitor had recovered something of his assurance while Holmes had been talking, and he rose from his chair now with a cold sneer upon his pale face. It may be so, or it may not, Mr. Holmes, said he. But, if you are so very sharp, you ought to be sharp enough to know that it is you who are breaking the law now, and not me. I have done nothing actionable from the first. But as long as you keep that door locked, you lay yourself upon to an action for assault and a legal constraint. The law cannot, as you say, touch you, said Holmes, unlocking and throwing open the door. Yet, there was never a man who deserved punishment more. If the young lady has a brother or a friend, he ought to lay a whip across your shoulders, by Jove, he continued, flushing up at the sight of the bitter sneer upon the man's face. It is not part of my duties to my client, but here's a hunting crop handy, and I think I shall just treat myself to. He took two swift steps to the whip, but before he could grasp it, there was a wild clatter of steps upon the stairs, 
the heavy hall door banged, and from the window we could see Mr. James Windebank running at the top of his speed down the road. Now, there's a cold-blooded scoundrel, said Holmes, laughing as he threw himself down into his chair once more. The case has, in some respects, been not entirely devoid of interest. I cannot now entirely see all the steps of your reasoning, I remarked. Well, of course, it was obvious from the first that this Mr. Hosmer Angel must have some strong object for his curious conduct. And it was equally clear that the only man who really profited by the incident, as far as we could see, was the stepfather. Then the fact that the two men were never together but that the one always appeared when the other was away. That was suggestive. So were the tinted spectacles and the curious voice, which both hinted at disguise, as did the bushy whiskers. My suspicions were all confirmed by his peculiar action in typewriting his signature, which of course, inferred that his handwriting was so familiar that she would recognize it, even the smallest sample of it. You see, all these isolated facts, together with many minor ones, all pointed in the same direction. And how did you verify them? Having once spotted my man, it was easy to get corroboration. I knew the firm for which this man worked. Having taken the printed description, I eliminated everything from it, which could be the result of a disguise. The whiskers. The glasses. The voice. And I sent it to the firm with a request that they would inform me whether it answered to the description of any of their travelers. I had already noticed the peculiarities of the typewriter, and I wrote to the man himself at his business address, asking him if he would come here, as I expected. His reply was typewritten and revealed the same trivial but characteristic defects. The same post brought me a letter from Westhouse and Marbank of Fenchurch Street to say that the description tallied in every respect with that of their employee. James Windebank. 
voila. And Miss Sutherland? Well, my dear Watson, if you were Miss Sutherland and I told you this tale, would you believe me? <laughs> <laughs>